This week on Deep Night... I am feeling many feelings about this election. I, I actually I took to my bed for two days last week in a dramatic fashion. I, I, was, I found myself facing a lot of anxiety uh, about the coming election and the debates and all the media coming out. And, and I feel like other people are as well. I don't feel alone in my despair. Friends, hello, and welcome once again to The Deep Night. It's the hour of regrets and revelations, and I am your host, your guide into hidden realms, your holder of the keys to the mine cavern, Dale Seaver. We come to you, as always, from the foul banks of the Gowanus, and all the Gowani dazzles beneath the harvest moon, she does, still off-gassing at alarming rates due to this unseasonably warm weather. Where's fall? It's too hot for the adhesive on my gourd sculptures of ghouls and goblins that I give out instead of candy to the neighborhood children. And the wax figures I've made of my wife, Galinda, are all melting. She's away in Taos, and I can't run my usual conjuring spells of longing if her face is sliding into the metal tray. I need it to cool down so that I can feel less moist and more at ease. There's so much happening that's driving me just a little crazy. This week is a special week on the program. We're going to address all of the madness of this current election cycle and even touch on some other pre-existing conditions that some of us have in a conversation with comedian and now my dear friend Lindsay Goldwert. Channeling our energies is an important part of the work that we do together. This is a healing podcast in its way, and Lindsay and I work through it in this program that you're about to hear. Sometimes our feelings of rage, uncertainty, helplessness can be magnified by current events. The election, it's, it's this election. I haven't felt this much anxiety since that time our meditation leader, Steve, tried to mix things up by bringing in a prayer tuba. Lindsay's journalism has appeared in Quartz, Fast Company, Yahoo, the New York Daily News, Slate. ABCnews.com, CBSnews.com, Refinery29, Adweek, The Next Web, Red Book, Glamour, and lots of other places. She's also co-produced a funny web series about money called Unbalanced for MarketWatch.com. It's going to come out in January. Perhaps you, dear listener, are feeling as I am, shaking at an abnormal frequency. I'm at a 17 on the Bender Universal scale, and I should be a 2. I've been unable to maintain a simple mountain weasel pose during my yoga classes down at the shipyard that I dutifully attend because I invested in two tight pants and a rubber mat that I have to clean and an eco-friendly water bottle made from some kind of rare earth metal. It burns my skin, but the water tastes so good. Yes, these words that are out there, loaded words like Billy Bush and Rigged and Access Hollywood, they're lurking around penetrating our minds without consent. Well, we need to fill the air with better words, words like baobab and fender and porpoise. I remember my grandfather was active when it came to politics. A member of the church and a fierce warrior for education, he was a man born in the wilds of Saskatchewan who made a life for himself preaching the gospel, first on horseback, then from the pulpit in places like Seattle and Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. His was a faith centered around tolerance and acceptance and diversity. He stressed to me that asking questions was better than assuming one had answers. Ignorance was undermining. So every four years, 
When we gathered at a vacation spot in Vermont, we'd drag out this little color TV set, having to adjust the rabbit ears to get the signal coming over the mountainside, and we'd pull chairs in close from the other room, and we'd watch through static as speakers would take the stage at the GOP convention or the Democratic National Convention. And I remember him being outraged at Pat Buchanan and wincing at the words family values as they were trotted out, his delight with Andrew Richards sticking it to George H.W., the pride in Geraldine Farrar, the dismay at Dukakis being unable to connect from his little apple box under the podium. I'm not sure he would have survived the current election season, the doom and gloom, the false claims, the outrageous behavior, on a daily basis. It's probably best to keep the elderly away from the TV this go-round. In addition to protecting our seniors, what can we do for ourselves to make it through the next 20 days or so? Because whatever happens, soon we're all going to be gathered around the holiday table, honoring a false narrative about togetherness among pious settlers in a vibrant indigenous culture that has been systematically destroyed. And we'll have to break oven rolls with our kin. We'll all find ourselves uttering these holiday words, Pass the cranberry salad, Ed! And in that moment, we have to depend on each other because we're family. And even though I disagree on his dangerous and ill-informed ideas about fracking, I'm going to have to get along with him if we're going to tear into the flesh of a flightless bird together. So let's listen to the voices that are coming into your ear holes this day. Let's slow our breathing down just a hair. Let's turn off our social medias and our tweet boxes and just try to calmly get through this. Let's go to a place where we can hash out some things about what's bothering us. A safe space. A place where we're all naked beneath the stars, where the cranberry salad is freely passed. That place is here in the deep night with my guest, Lindsay Goldwood. Lindsay! Hi. I'm so thrilled you could join me today. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Well, uh, uh, thanks uh, for being here. Well, we've only known each other a little bit, haven't we? Through email, through the internet, through the virtual world. It's so nice to meet you in person. It is, in, in, a, in IRL, as the kids say. That's right, in the <laughs> Deep Night Studios. In real life, in real life. In real what, life. That's what that stood for, in case anybody wasn't. I have some older listeners. But I feel like we have a great affinity. We do. On, on many things. We met a similar perspective on the world. You just said you were a Libra. I am a Libra. Ah, that's why. Are you an air sign as well? Uh, I'm a Libra. Oh, you're a Libra as well? I don't right know anything on. about astrology except uh, that I am an air sign. But um, the fact that you are a Libra is, uh, I, I tend to get along with Libras. Right? We're so agreeable. We, we're agreeable. We're creative. We'd, we'd, uh, <laughs> that's all I know. We don't want to cause a stir. No, nah, we want to cause our own personal stir. <laughs> that's right. Very good nesters. Yeah, I th am I a good nester? I'm not domestically <laughs> gifted. I'm a slob. Are you a slob? No. Oh, I'm I mean, I, I get messy and then I clean it up. I get messy and then I roll around in piles. <laughs> oh, my. Well, <laughs> and there is the path at which we, uh, a point at which we diverge. But I am a great fan of yours, nonetheless, slob oh, or no. Thank uh, you. You, you. You host the Can't Miss podcast, Spent. All about uh, financial literacy and financial goings-on. Kind of a storytelling show about money, isn't it? It is. I, I wanted to uh, do a podcast. I, I wanted to, to smush my, uh, my journalism background with my comedy background. So I wanted to do kind of a funny money podcast um, that uh, 
for the financially challenged, <laughs> for people who don't uh, would never listen to a money podcast. So it's some stories. It's I have some really smart journalism friends who come and explain things to me. I uh, and mostly I just want to hear people talk about their money fuck ups and just laugh about it. That's my theory. Is if you can laugh at it, you can deal with it. Absolutely. Well, I want to talk more about that as we go along. Sure. But uh, I think uh, right now, because I would argue that you and I have uh, two of the most calming voices in podcasts. <laughs> uh, so. People have said I have a calming voice. It's very nice. I think uh, I'm from Long Island, and I had to, uh, my voice growing up was not very calming. So I think I've done a good job of, of uh, filtering my, uh, well, when I drink, my voice isn't very calming. <laughs> A lot of like talking to her. Uh -huh. <laughs> Get you out of here. You had to really work on it, though, did you? I guess I did. I, I don't mean to, but um, I'm glad that I've. It's not the most attractive accent. <laughs> well, I uh, grew up outside of Philadelphia, and they have a pretty harsh accent oh, down my, there too. My nieces are from Philadelphia, and they're always like my nieces. I have two nieces, Samantha and Lara, and my niece Samantha is always saying like Lara, like geez. It's so adorable. I can't. She's like, Grandma, jeez. so adorable. Tuesday and Monday and all that stuff, the Eagles happening down there. That's, it's a lot of uh, very short. Anyhow, yes. I've also worked. You wouldn't be able to tell, I don't think. Yeah. But except when I drink and talk to my mother on the phone, then it gets, I'm like, you know what? Talk, talk to her. What do you want from me? But in, on, the, on the podcast, I try to take it easy. Well, I think you do. And I, I'm always soothed by what's happening, and I hope our listeners today will be soothed by what uh, they hear. Uh, we may talk about some things that are upsetting today, but uh, it's going to be delivered in a resonant package Excellent. Um, uh, for everyone's ear holes. For sure. Lindsay, I noticed that in recent days, your social media posts and tweets, I follow them all, have become full of a certain kind of anxiety. Yes. And a, a, maybe a little tinge of depression about what's going on. Oh, yes. So you're feeling all the feelings of this election, are you? I am feeling many feelings about this election. I, I actually, I took to my bed for two days last week in a dramatic fashion. I, I, was, I found myself facing a lot of anxiety. Uh about the coming election and the debates and all the media coming out. And, and I feel like other people are as well. I don't feel alone in my despair. No, that's why I wanted to have you in, because I think you're touching on something that is happening. You struck a nerve when I saw read those posts. <sighs> I thought, this is not an isolated thing. We're all kind of feeling this more intensely so. uh, than other times. And you say you stayed in bed for a couple of days. How else does it manifest physically or uh, behaviorally? I found when I was watching the last debate... Um, I couldn't. You know, sometimes I, I watch the debates and I can tweet funny things. Um, so, but I found I, I was watching the debate, uh, the, the town hall, and and watching Donald Trump sort of follow her, follow Hillary around on stage. And I found his responses and his his not answering the questions. You know, he has a what his tactic, which is I'm sure what he's been trained to do, is don't answer the question that you were asked. Answer the question that you wish you'd been asked. Um, I found that very galling. That's like how you answer the media about building a new condo. That's not how you talk about policies that are going to affect the entire world. And I found myself unable to laugh. And I found myself uh, unable to continue watching. And, uh, and my, I was with my husband, and he was like, he's like, oh, are you going to go? And I'm like, I can't watch this anymore. This is so horrible. This is so depressing. It's like watching, you know, this the valedictorian have to, like, go up against, you know, the bully that throws kids in garbage cans, <laughs> and I just suddenly lost my sense of humor about it, which is pretty rough. Yeah, I, well, it's it was it's tough to watch. It's very painful to said. watch, and uh, and it can even be frustrating 
if let's say they were equals, which I'm not saying they are, but sure. let, let's say that they were, you still might have, usually when I watch the debates, let me put it this way, I get frustrated anyway because they're doing, as you say, they're not answering the question, they're going this way or that way. In this case, I was also a little disappointed that maybe there wasn't more of a response uh, f- uh, from uh, the Democratic nominee to, to, to push back on these things that were so clearly outrageous or, or, or th- as you said, threatening and just strange. I, I'm, I completely agree. I, I don't understand. I know that the, the Democrats kind of lie in wait and they release their surprises, but I just, I found, <laughs> I have a lot of disappointment in the Democrats as well. I'm disappointed in everybody, which is also very painful. Uh, I, uh, so I worked in journalism for a long time, but I briefly took a break to gain some uh, usable, usable skills in PR, and uh, which was not the ideal job for me, but it gave me a lot of insight into how things shouldn't be done. And, and I don't really understand like a lot of Hillary's approach to this campaign. I think a lot of it's kind of wimpy. I think that... Uh, my joke was that Hillary should just come on stage with like the head of Osama bin Laden and just whip it out of her purse and just throw <laughs> it into the crowd and leave. And that would get a response. I suggested just uh, putting a little uh, pack of Tic Tacs on the table and walking away. But, Absolutely. Oh <laughs> but either way. <laughs> I, there's just, the, just, you know, the whole thing about she said, um, Michelle Obama told me, you know, when they go low, we go high. And everyone was like, oh, that's so great. And I was like, Fuck that. I'm like, you can't. I find that high road, it just comes off as like elitism and it comes off as snobbery. And I'm not saying you should like dance in the gutter, but at the same time, this, this, is, this is no time to, to take. But at the same time, I'm sure the Clintons, I mean, they're, I'm, they're, I'm sure that they've planned some really hideous stuff for the next few weeks. They, <laughs> so I don't know. It's just all they been very are cal- They are calculating. In, they're in very the calculating. They, they know politics. They know a lot of stuff. I mean, I, you know, I, I've, uh, the Clintons are, you know, my, my affinity for Hillary Clinton um, comes from as being growing up um, and just sort of seeing this person want, being the first lady and saying, I'm not, I want to do what I want to do, what I was trained to do, to be an attorney and to make change. I don't want to sit home and bake cookies. So she said in 1992. And uh, the media response was, who the fuck do you think you are? And that was a, I had a big, uh, as a kid, and not raised in a feminist household anyway, um, being like, well, that's not fair. Why go to law school? Why try? Right. So I've always kind of had a, I've always had a little bit of a defensive thing in my heart for Hillary. And also, when I worked at ABC, um, I knew some of the reporters that uh, were embedded with her on the trail, um, who said very nice things about her. So I sort of believe that she is a, a good person based on the things that my feelings and things that people have told me. That said. The Clintons are a bunch of scumbags, you know. Well, I don't know about that. I think they are. I mean, I think he. I think I. There, there's. They, I mean that in a. I mean that in an affectionate way. I think he has boundary issues and a kind of yeah. uh, maybe yeah. an issue with power, and he maybe bleeds himself a little bit out yeah. there, and, and and like a blob, kind of brings people yeah. people yeah. in. I think she, independent of him. Would have been very successful. Oh, and without fine a on doubt. Her own. Without she a got doubt. sucked into that thing. Without and, and a doubt. The, into the charms of that fella. Without a doubt. But um, I'm still a fan of hers, and I'm still a f- more a fan of hers than I am of his in some ways. And uh, I don't know. A lot of his transgressions are are coming across as her transgressions, and that really bothers me yeah, too. Yeah, that's not right. No, it stinks. But you do wish she'd land a punch. Just one, because you know he would crumble. One. And a real one. Not. I, <laughs> no, mean, I know no. she's not like a natural speaker. I know that she comes, 
you know, my, my father says my, my parents don't care for her. Um, they're going to vote for her, but they don't care for her. Um, <laughs> like competent versus incompetent, Lindsay. You know, that's that's right. their point of view. And okay, um, I'll take it. Yeah. Um, but my dad's theory is that she reminds a lot of men of, uh, of a cruel teacher. Of a teacher, like an old school teacher who used to hit them with a ruler and be like, "You like get out of here! Like you're going nowhere! You're doing nothing!" Like my dad grew up in Brooklyn, where you know he was he was hit by a lot of teachers. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is interesting that I think some people, even in a generation above ours, as you're saying, uh, have a reaction to her as if she's angry all the time yeah. or scolding or something. I don't see that I, at all. I don't. I don't have that impression. Of I don't her get it either. Maybe uh, like because I she doesn't look like she doesn't yell like my my Jewish mother yelled at me. <laughs> That's scolding. You haven't been yelled at by like by my mother who's then told me, you know, you know, what are you talking about? Get it together. You know, I don't know. It's just to me it's not scolding, it's just talking. <laughs> you know. Right. Well I'll tell you, I was free spelunking in a cave outside of Nashville. Of course. Uh, before watching the second debate between old diddling Don and uh, Secretariat Clinton, and completely unrelated to being in that dark hole in the ground, uh, as I tuned in, I was shaking, positively shaking, and vibrating with so much, I don't know what to call it, worry, magic, panic, uh, I could barely get through it. As you said, it was so, I was already amped up going into it, and then it happened, and I just couldn't sit still, and then I couldn't sleep. Oh, gosh. Did you have trouble sleeping after that? Have you had difficulty with uh, insomnia? Yes. Yes, I have. Um, just related to this election, or no? I think it's been feeding into it. Uh, someone, there was a piece that was recently published in The Week, which is a great uh, news publication. It was this post, it was like, a, what was it? It was like, it was like dated, like, what was it, like June, like 2019, you know, the country is in chaos in the midst of this, uh, of, the, of the Clinton presidency. And it was this foreshadowing of what the nation's going to turn into, you know, under under Clinton, but also because of because of Trump and because there's been all this, you know, there's been riots and all these things. And it was like this Cormac McCarthy novel that I had like, no <laughs> desire to ever read. And uh, and I was just, and it's just it's launching people's imaginations into such a, such dark places um, and I, I do worry a lot. Um, you know, I'm Jewish. I, I, I see a lot. I mean, every, you know, I, I'm not surprised that, 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 uh, that Trump has invigorated, you know, the, the anti-Semites and the racists and the homophobes, you know, but it's, it's painful to, to, to see it out there in some ways like, well, better out than in, you know, but, but I don't know. I don't, know. <laughs> I don't think so because when, because people, people start to People, I, I don't like hearing children teasing other children. I worry a lot. Uh, I have a joke that I say about. Um, I said, I hope you know. I said all of my Muslim friends are all welcome to live in my attic. You know, when we have to hide from. I don't know. It's it's you know I don't like the, you know um, the the critic for the New York Times, um, Chico Kukatani, wrote a wrote a really really amazing book review for a biography of uh, Adolf Hitler, and it just drew a lot of parallels about how people thought Hitler was a boob and 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 he had good entertainment value and people laughed and no one thought he was anything and it was very like can you uh, imagine that can you just uh, imagine? <laughs> now it was just it's just been alive an accumulation of. Of, of despair it hasn't been one thing uh so it, it doesn't even though I, I i have faith in hillary clinton i think she's gonna be she would be a very competent president and i think she has people's best interests at heart i really do um i, I think that people are just it's unleashed something very hideous in people yeah well i had just a small taste of this now i don't get uh, in, involved too much in politics on twitter because i know i don't i just don't want to stir it up right I really and this time i had posted a very uh, kind of uh, 
harmless thing about, you know, that frog that has gotten so yes. uh, uh, become an icon of hate or whatever, Pepe. But I read Pepe when he was part of Boys Club by the great artist Matt Fury, a kindest, gentlest, you know, Bay Area artist, and these four guys that would hang out and, you know, uh, get high or do whatever they did. They were mm-hmm. just like silly teenager dudes. But one was a frog, one was a wolf, I don't remember the others. And now he's been totally uh, corrupted and made into this symbol. So I posted something because Fury had posted something kind of reclaiming the idea. Sure. So I said, well, let's just take him back like I miss old Pepe or something like that. Hundreds of retweets and targeted things to me. Uh, the retweets, fine. I, I don't need uh, – it doesn't bother me. But the ones that were the messages right back to me saying, good luck with that tough guy and uh, cuckold and all these – and the icons that they would have, the, the profile photos, would be the most horrible things I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And and you go through their tweets and say, well, this is just – this is straight up. This is a white supremacist. This is a, a nasty business. Now, all of them have about five followers, so you can take yeah. some solace in that. But – it felt to me as if Twitter, maybe we just need to uh, uh, stop. Well, I just feel like... <laughs> there's a little crust of like media people and comedians and, yeah. and that kind of thing. And then there's maybe teenagers. And then it feels like the bottom, the great ocean beneath the crust, is, is just bile and hatred. I, I think that you may be right. What I've noticed when I've been... Uh... I don't... I've had some, some pretty gross things come, come my way, but uh, I just say... To them, like you're, you can't even use your real name. That's not your real face. You're just a coward. You yeah. know, anyone can hide behind an avatar. It's, it's, it's to me, it's just like, I, I would be more afraid if they were using their real names. Yeah. I, I find that very because they are afraid. They are afraid to say what they're saying without the cover of anonymity, and I find that that very lame. You know, it's like oh, you're sure. using a cartoon, or you're using, you know, you know, a character from Watchmen. Oh, that's very daring, <laughs> and you know, you're you're coming at me from from your your basement. I mean, I don't know who these people are. Some of them are, maybe could be dentists. Some of them could be, could be, and that's in there all in a basement. I mean, that's what's so crazy, you know. Yeah. Um, a lot of racist dentists out there. Oh, that's terrifying. <laughs> As someone who does not care for the dentist. <laughs> no, we we appreciate the fine work that the uh, Dental Association of America does, and uh, thank you to all of my dentists. Maybe it's a Jewish thing. Just, I like my dentist, nice Jewish and. With the nitrous. <laughs> yeah. I have a very handsome dentist, so I, I'm okay with it. Excellent. Um, well, yes, I wouldn't want anybody to uh, kind of pretend to be someone else. I like to be exactly who I am yeah. at all times. Have Don't hide cur- behind something. Yeah. Have the courage of your convictions. Say who you are. Absolutely. Well, now we, all this stuff is in the air. It's, it's bothering us. We're unable to sleep. What can we do about it? What are some exercises that maybe you've discovered that help with this kind of a thing? I think, um, I think what I've been doing is that I've decided that uh, there's only – I said to myself, because I don't think I'm going to watch the next debate – which is tonight. And I think I said, I was talking to a friend and I said, I don't think if I, if I don't watch the debate, Hillary will not lose, you know, like my watching of it and viewing of it and like, you know, digesting my stomach acid over it is not going to affect the outcome of this election. I'm not going to get another email from her. And God knows I get enough emails being like, Lindsay, how could you? <laughs> how could you not have tuned in? Like, she we does you, send a lot of emails. I get a lot. My favorite, my favorite was I got one from, from President Obama being like, Lindsay, I need you. And I was like, Barack, <laughs> I didn't know. Um, but uh, just just say, you know, it's okay to disengage. We all know who we're going to vote for. It's okay to disengage. It's okay not to follow every scandal. Like, it doesn't, 
you can really it's it put down don't look at Twitter. Don't don't look at the news for two days. I think it's really important for ourselves to take a break to know that you're not missing anything. You're only missing horror. <laughs> you know the spectacle of you, it. And you are, yeah. and and you can pick up on that horror like another day. Um, it's not going anywhere. Literally any day. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I would also suggest, uh, I mean, this sounds kind of corny, but um, like last night, I, I, yesterday I had kind of a crummy day. I've been, you know, obsessed about, upset about news, upset about personal stuff. And I just went out with some friends. I met with some friends for some beers. Uh, I went to uh, I went to this place in Queens called The Creek in the Cave. I watched part of a storytelling show. I met up with some other comedians for, uh, for some beers, and it cheered me right up. So hang out with other people who aren't talking about the election. There you go. Hang out with some dummies who have better <laughs> things to talk about. <laughs> and see some comedy, sure. Absolutely. You, I've also noticed you've been posting weird crime stories. Oh, I am a true crime freak. <laughs> What's what's behind that? Uh, You know, I've always uh, that that's just a thing. I've always been fascinated with true crime. I've always been. I used to. I I I just think they're fascinating. Um, Maybe it's like a David Lynch thing. You know, the behind ordinary things or something very crazy. I also used to work at Court TV. Uh, oh, for yes. I, for a few years, um, which was a very fun place to work for a little while, and um, I mean it doesn't exist anymore, um, but it was a collection of real and real weird people who would get really into a case, and you would see. I used to talk to the lawyers, and you'd really get to know all the characters involved, and you'd sort of see the story behind the story. So it's just 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 something that uh, me and my my lady friends really enjoy. And is there a, a genre of it or a piece, a kind of it, a kind of crime that you're more drawn to than others? For instance, cold cases or that kind of thing. You know, I like. This sounds very strange, but I like a lot of business crime, <laughs> which doesn't shock me because I have a, a like- funny money podcast. But there's a great piece that I posted yesterday. It's a very old story. It's from Texas Monthly. It was a piece about. Uh, how these two federal agents, so, uh, so okay, picture it. It's a farm, <laughs> a horse farm in Kentucky. Uh, Kentucky <laughs> Derby, <laughs> Kentucky horse Derby noise. winning horse um, is found dead in his in his stall. <gasps> oh so at first gosh. it's like, oh, what are you going to do with a dead horse? But then it becomes, then it's like, well, why did the horse die? And then it becomes about insurance and this larger story. And it was this, this horse murder. It was horse murder. Horse murder. <laughs> But it just was this larger story about you know this paper trail and smart people and ideas and it just then it became a story about a family and it became this larger thing. Um, I find economic crime is very interesting because they're often, you know, I mean the thing with my podcast uh, is you know money stories are just people stories. You know, mm-hmm. um, like a story about like a financial crime is often a story about family desperation, about wanting to keep up appearances, uh, is about wanting to, you know escape a past you know so I, I find those to be interesting uh I don't like blood and gore I don't get off on that I like I like uh I like grifting and conniving and you know I don't know it's more theatrical and more human to me people's decisions as they try to beat the system or they try to beat the system and it catches up to them doesn't it yeah every they try time to, every time you well, can't just kill a horse you can't just kill a horse not a horse <laughs> uh, not a horse that was worth that much um it's no. called the killing of alidar a l y d a r it's it's an old story but if you, it's i cannot recommend it enough by skip hollinsworth I'm gonna check it out it's a great story and My and goodness. and a well told story like that that's smart uh, like they can explain the finances a little bit in a way that's very easy to, to digest, but also can get into the drama of it. That's such a gift. 
I'll say, I, well, I, <laughs> I'm intrigued by that immense, and I like some of that stuff too, yeah. the true crime and all that. We all have dark, we all have darkness within us, Dale. Absolutely, yeah. that brings me to my next point because what I did the other day, I went to see the musical Cats, this yeah. smash Broadway uh, uh, theatrical experience from Sir Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> you ever see that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I did. I saw it as a, as a child. It was much more sexual than I remembered. Oh. I'll say that. My goodness. Oh, I should see it again. Bombularina is one of them. Yeah. Cassandra. They're really having me see cats and leotards in a whole new light, Lindsay. My goodness. <laughs> it was wild. What do you think's the sexiest cat? Sexiest cat? I, oh, God, that's, I, I am a cat owner. I have an elderly cat. He's not sexy. I don't know. I think... Uh, I don't know if cats are sexy. Cat women are sexy. Oh, cat women now. Like yeah. you know, who, who played who played Catwoman in, in the original Batman? Oh, Julie Newmar. Julie Newmar. Well, sexy. there were three of them, but Julie Ju- Newmar Eartha is Kitt, mine. Sexy, Eartha, you know, Julie Newmar, sexy. Um, I don't know. Are they? Se- I've seen my cat throw up so many times. <laughs> I can no longer objectify him as he deserves. All right. The answer was Lynx. The answer is Lynx. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> Long ears. So. But what do we feel like getting back to this election business? What do you think is at the root of this? It's okay to not like the guy. Yeah. I don't understand people who who really do, honestly. Sure. And I don't think he likes himself very much is my theory. All right. I don't want to do too much of that kind of, uh, you know, analyzing of what's going on. But it seems like, to me, he's... He doesn't consider himself attractive. He has issues with his own uh, uh, being. He's had 70 years of rejection, hmm. you know, and internalized that. And I'm not defending anything that he has said or done because I, I find it despicable, really. Nixon had similar qualities, and I'm a bit of a Nixon uh, f- uh, a fanatic. Well, that's interesting. <laughs> if you will. At least a fascination with him because he looms so large, you know, in so much of the 20th sure. century. and. I read the excellent book, uh, Ike and Dick, which is all about the relationship between Nixon and Eisenhower. Oh, that's fascinating. And, oh, Eisenhower couldn't stand him and was so masterful at playing Nixon against himself, refusing uh, to give him acknowledgement or little little scraps, you know. He was always seeking approval from oh, Eisenhower, sure. and Eisenhower kept it back because he didn't care for him. And uh, just, as you said, masterfully manipulating to move his own agenda forward. And yeah. it's, I mean... Say what you will about Eisenhower. I don't know if he really even wanted to be there, but he was, and he did the job. But that really drove Nixon over the edge, that not ever winning. You know, he had problems losing any election. He had problems not connecting with with sure. with Ike and, and being respected on that. And maybe Hillary is guilty to some degree of that same kind of a thing. But you get the sense that she has confidence in who she is as a person. Yes. You understand? There's a core there that I don't question. It's unwavering. You can feel how you feel about it, but it's solid. Trump, you have a sense that he's just a black, gooey mass inside, and it's just <laughs> boiling and bubbling in there, and it's not its not ever solid. I think uh, it's an interesting point of view. I, I think that... Uh that Trump thinks quite a lot of himself. I think it is, I think it's, I mean, I think it's fear. I think fear is the, uh, is at the root of this entire election. I think Trump has a fear of not leaving a legacy. I think he has a fear that people are going to remember him in a way he doesn't want to be remembered. He's very angry that people bring up his dark economic times when he's reinvented himself and which he thought would have erased all that stuff. You know, he was, you know, my father, um, 
so I grew up on Long Island, but my father, uh, we had a family business in, in uh, Manhattan for many years. And people, my dad sold um, uh, like kind of high-end stereos and, and TVs and stuff. Oh, yeah. And people would come into my dad's store and they would complain about Trump in the, in the 80s and 90s and just say, oh, he, like, he stiffed me on this, stiffed me on that. Like he was known in New York as like a real cheap contractor type, you know, a real, real cheap developer. Yeah. So um, it's like Giuliani, like people who know him in New York are like, oh, that piece of shit. But, but people outside of New York think he's like America's mayor. I think it's a similar thing. People who know him in New York, know Trump, don't think quite as highly of him. No, on the East um, Coast, I'd the East say. Coast or you know, Atlantic City. Um, but I think that he did such a, a a good job in I mean use the word good in quotes, but you know there's there's something to be learned from just staying to your message about like I'm great, and eventually people will just come. And even though he was brought back on the uh, on the Apprentice, what I think was sort of a nostalgia thing. It he I don't think he saw it that way. I think he if if you convince enough people that you are who you are, people will start to buy into it. And there's there's definitely some lessons I'm trying to glean from Donald Trump in terms of like, what can I learn from him in terms of being persuasive and telling getting people to come around to my point of view. Um, it's a very dark way of looking at it. But sometimes I, it's pretty astonishing to me. Uh, the point being that uh, I, I think that he, so I, I actually thought at one point that he must have had some sort of brain event for him to have gone so... But then I, as you research, he's always been this way. He's always thought his opinion should count more. He's always had, you know, he's never, you know, he's been, you know, talking about the Central Park Five and just complaining about various things, about, you know, Native Americans, you know, you know, not being Indian to like claiming to be right. Native American. He's just always been a real bombastic, loud mouth person um, who's always wanted acceptance as well. So it's a fear of not being accepted, a fear of not being loved. Um, he needs that adulation from his, from his supporters he he feeds on it if they, re they reject him he's going to become so angry with them he's already said at rallies you know i hope you appreciate what i what i'm doing i don't have to be doing this and there's there's these moments where i'm like is he having some sort of a an, an episode up there where like the truth is coming out did you ever see the movie uh, a face in the crowd Oh, it's been some time. I, I can't recall it it's instantly. It's this movie uh, with uh, Andy Griffith and Patricia Neal. It's this movie about how Patricia Neal is a, a, a radio journalist, and she discovers this really charming convict who plays, who's real folksy. He's a convict, and he plays guitar. She finds him in prison, and she kind of makes him a radio star, and he ends up getting involved in politics, and she just kind of created this monster. And it's just such a great movie. It's Elia Kazan, and I watched it recently on uh, on Turner Classic Movies, and it's just, that movie, it's like, this is this is what's happening right now. But, I'm going to go back and watch it. Oh, it's so good. And it seems like it would fit into your fascination with people trying to game the system and yes. get away with it. And, Absolutely. And be caught. Hopefully, yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah. he's been caught many times. I'm a fundamentally honest person, and I'm obsessed with criminals and grifters. <laughs> <laughs> Is that because you feel like you could tip that way easily? No, I think it's because <laughs> I I couldn't. See, sometimes I think I could get away with so much. I just couldn't. Like, I, and that's why I'm so fascinated because I I still feel terrible about things I did in like fifth grade. Well, that's true too. I stole a gumball once, and I'm still reeling from it. <laughs> But, I had to take it back, I'll tell you. But I understand. I, I just There's a lot of humanity behind people's desperation and financial crime. And there's a lot of, uh, I guess, like murder, I find. Like, I can't really relate to somebody who just like, no, murders for yeah. the fun of murder. I mean, no. But, like, someone who, like, he was desperate to make that extra extra payment, you know, or, like, like right. Bernie Madoff is, like, the most fascinating story to me, you know. Um, how do you keep up a pyramid scheme for such a long time? It just keeps creating more problems, though, doesn't it? And I don't know how people get through it. <laughs> I don't know either. I crumble so easily. Once you make one bad decision, yeah, it's it's difficult. You have to be a multitasker. But as, as you said, did you uh, growing up was it a very political household? You no. said no. You didn't have a discussion about it. No, 
No, we didn't. Um, my we were all readers. You know, my dad was is sort of this like kind of self. Went, both my parents went to Queens College, but they're both sort of self taught. You know, big readers and thinkers. Um, but we didn't talk about politics growing up. Um, I got involved um, when I started working in news. I got very interested in politics. Um, but I think the Hillary Clinton thing, uh, as a, you know, it, so growing up in the '90s. Um, MTV was very involved in the 92 election. Uh, there was a choose or lose campaign. I don't know if you remember oh, yeah. that. Actually, we had the boxers question. Yes. Yeah. Uh, actually, I'm friendly with, uh, I don't know if, did you watch MTV in, the, in those days? I mean, yes, sure. <laughs> uh, did did you have reception again. in the Gowanus Canal? <laughs> um, so Karen Duffy is Duff. You remember Duff? Yes, DJ? She's yeah. one of my friends. Through She's my only famous friend. And um, so I remember be, suddenly being interested in politics and what does this mean for me at, at a young age. But never really feel liking, feel never really feeling like I had I had much of a. I always voted. That's really all. Um, so, but my father, as as I've been very sad about the election and very depressed, my father says to me, "He's like Lindsay, we never thought we would we would survive Nixon. You know, when he got elected after after losing, and then they, to, to see him again, it was like a nightmare. And we we thought this is it." And then it was like a horror. So I think about how there's always been terrible times, times of yes. national anxiety and times where there's going to be riots and things and people have gotten through it. Um, and that's what keeps me going. The Republic will endure. You know, it's like we got through the plague. We got, I think it's always, <laughs> like it's I, my theory. is I'm a very happy person. I'm a very depressed person. Like I, that's my thing. I'm like a happy, bleak person. It's like, well, it's always been shit. It's going to be OK. This is a Libra. Yeah. Always balancing it out. It is. It's always been shit, so it's always going to be okay. <laughs> was there any stress that was in the household that you picked up, even though you weren't? Uh, uh, it wasn't being addressed. Well, um, what the big thing in my household was uh, was the recession in the early nineties. Mm. Um, my father, my family had a small business um, that uh, had to that that closed uh, in the early nineties, which was a cause of very massive anxiety in my household because uh, there was so much competition from these big box stores, which yes. most of them are gone too, Circuit City, Computer City. Um, people just weren't buying these like bitchin' sound systems anymore. And, you know, and so, but it was very traumatic for my father. It, it definitely developed, it definitely um, spurned in me a real, um, um, a, a real um, empathy for small business owners. Um, and it's understanding of how difficult it is to compete. And, and now, especially with the rents getting very high in all these major cities, I, I do wonder how, how they can do it because the experience of going to those big places and the reason that they failed is because it's lousy they were lousy uh they it's still lousy yeah i mean when you went to my dad's store or you went to i, I gosh it's down the street i don't i think it's still their stereo exchange yeah but who work there they, i mean they, they they don't have a lot of people working there but they know the equipment they know everything they'll like you know like my dad was took like my dad and my grandfather they took real care you know and they were involved in the business from the 40s you know 40s 50s 60s um, now it's like it's you know you don't get paid very much you're not really paid to care and also it's about price wars. I tell my father because my dad still gets very blue after all these years about having given up his business. Uh, I feel like he lost his purpose and um, I say to him like Dad, how would you feel if people were coming into the store with their phones and saying Amazon has this this for this price you have to meet it. You'd want to like throw them out. <laughs> you want to kill them <laughs> and kill yourself. And uh, so it's not easy. It's not easy for. Humanity. So, uh, money was one of the things that was yes, there, yes. and uh, that was the same thing uh, for me as well. And I don't know that I, I have a great handle on it myself. Sure. It was always that we were um, uh, struggling, I think, most of the time. And uh, I, I uh, remember my um, uh, my mother, who I spent a lot of time with, of course, uh, 
she used to buy a lot of things in, at, at the mall. And uh, maybe she'd buy multiple things and hold on to them mm-hmm. and then return them as a kind of savings. She'd leave the tags on. And then she'd take oh. them back when she <laughs> needed some cash. Uh, it, well, okay, that turtleneck's going back, you know, wh- whatever it was. When she passed, we found 400 sweaters oh, that she had so purchased. And I don't remember exactly the amount of money that we made just returning things that still had the tags huh. on them. But, but would it, she wear them with the tags or she would just... No, no, they would be in the... Like she'd buy two or three of the same thing and then keep the tags on a couple of them and then we'd go back. I mean, I spent more time in the return line and the huh. layaway department. Why do you think she bought them in the first place? If she wasn't going to wear them, I, I don't. I don't know if it was a sale that she, that she could get it. I, she maybe yeah. she fluctuated with weight, so she bought a couple different sure. sizes. Um, but if we were tight, and there were times where we'd pay for a Burger King breakfast sandwich with pennies and things out of a bag, always just stuck with me as such a oh gosh, oh, kind of humiliating moment. But uh, that's what it was, and. So, so she had this whole that's fascinating. <laughs> kind of a retail bank. <laughs> that's so. These stories are exactly why I I do the podcast. People have these financial behaviors that are so unique to themselves. Um, I think a lot of mine is kind of this. Uh, is magmat- I call it magical realism finance, which is you know it's it's not really it's, you think you know oh, might not, it's not really I'm not really spending this money if I you know if I if I just. Like if you project, if you don't see the cash leaving your hand, you don't feel it. That's real. That's real behavioral finance. But sometimes, oh, if I buy this lipstick, like I need it. You know, you 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 don't. You know, this whole thing with need versus want. But um, your desires to 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 make yourself feel better can can justify spending certain economic things. But in the end, when it, when you, that's just so. Or oh, that's just that thing with your mom. That's so interesting. To have a, a store of something that you can you can you can cash in in the you know in case of emergency. I'm trying to think if I do something like that. Um, I have um I have some apps that I save money in. I save my change to do certain things, and it's sort of a rainy day fund, and um, which I always say I'm saving for a vacation. But really, what I'm doing is like if I ever get if I'm ever in a tough place, I can always just like hit the release button just in case. Uh, but yeah, everyone I, I think family really informs people's people's financial feelings. If your mom was like, a lot of my friends have immigrant parents, so they're very, very, you know, parents were very cheap or they were, so the kids will grow up because they, they came with so little. So the children will go one way or the other. They'll be, they'll become like them or they'll just be like, oh, now that I have something, I'm going to spend all of it. You know, some people who come from very little never forget what it's like to be poor. Some people can't wait to forget what it was like to be poor. It's, it's fascinating. Everyone's different. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think for, for, me, what that meant is I don't ever want to have that, uh, be in that position again. So I overspend, and no matter how much I've made in my life, I'm always five hundred dollars short every paycheck, For every sure. every month, and I've made very little. Now I do okay, yeah, but I'm still five hundred dollars. Absolutely, still, it's also kind of sad because that's like a couple pairs of pants and a nice bottle of booze to only be five hundred dollars, you know, above your means, but. Um, that's it's, a real thing. People are, you know, I mean, no matter how much money you make, um, unless you're, you know, incredibly gifted financially, or you're very, very poor. You know, most people are only four hundred dollars away from a real, a real emergency. You know, yeah. from having things in their household go real pear shaped. Uh, <laughs> so, um, and it's just very hard. I mean, living in New York City is very expensive. It's not like it was always expensive, right. but now it's it's out it's out of control. It's expensive, but you can make more money here. You can have more opportunities exactly. here. Exactly. So, what are you going to move to Kansas and you can afford a house, and then there's no job. It's, it's very or you only make a quarter of what you're making. Right. Uh, you have to be very creative. The devil's bargain. Indeed. What were some of your early jobs? 
I worked at uh, at a high school job. I worked at a a travel agency. It was a teen tour. So like in the so they would arrange te- teen tours, like a thing that like Long Island <laughs> Jews do, where you send the kids away for the summer and they tour the country in a bus and they go camping. Um, so that company did that, and they also did like a travel agency before. Obviously, no one needed travel agencies anymore. So I did. I had like an admin job. I always wa- I wanted to have my own money, so I didn't have to ask my parents for money. I wanted to buy my CDs, go to Tower Records, and buy all that so that was great that was my first job and it was always a it was I, it always felt great to make my own money to not have to ask my parents for money that was exciting for me always good i used to mow the neighbor's lawn yeah and it just felt great to have that 20 bucks oh yeah yeah it was a great gig they were real nice to me um and i, I worked there for, for through, through high school and then i i don't know i uh kind of basic stuff i was a camp counselor at a day, local day camp i uh, was very briefly a restaurant hostess um but um yeah and uh, interning I always want. I thought I wanted to work for a magazine, so a lot of my jobs were doing kind of media stuff in college, not making very much, but living at home. And And then you find yourself in uh, journalism, yes, and going to school for that, yes. And somehow you also decide to do stand up, yes, yeah, and uh, have been doing that since. So the the story with that is, so I I, I'd always wanted to be a stand up comedian since I was a little girl. I used to have my Barbies do stand up. That's like that's so sad. It sounds adorable, but like like no one wants no. to play with you. When I, don't, I don't think it sounds adorable. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's my Barbies would tell like Bill Hicks jokes. No. Like, oh, I don't. Uh. No, no. Thank you for not going. Oh, because it really was sad, actually. Um, so I always wanted wanted to do that. I had no idea how a person did that. I was never a theater person or a stage person. So um, when I went to graduate school for journalism right after college, uh, we had to pick a beat. And uh, people chose different things. And, of course, I chose live comedy because I was wanted to get close to it. So I, this was in the early 2000s, and I went to Upright Citizens Brigade, and I hung out there. And uh, I went to some open mics, and uh, I just went to just bomb to see what it would be like to bomb. But I didn't really bomb. I, I did... <laughs> Okay. It's also very hot in 22, so everyone was very interested in talking to me. Uh, but uh, I didn't bomb. I did okay. I didn't do good well, but I, you know, I got a few laughs, and that was that was very that was not what I was expecting. So I got I got booked on a few shows, which is crazy, and uh, yeah. So I and I just but then so I suddenly was was intoxicated by it and. Uh, but then when the semester was over, so I did it for a few months, and the semester was over, and I wrote all my papers and stuff, and I didn't, I didn't continue with it, and I regretted it always. Um, so then when I, uh, so years went by, I worked at a bunch of different places. I just stuck to the journalism, which I never, which I, I don't know. I like the writing. I like the news. I just, it was a very hard decade a lot to be in, in, in the field. I worked at, a, at Glamour Magazine. I worked at Red Book Magazine. I worked at Decor TV. I worked at CBSNews.com, ABCNews.com, and the Daily News. A lot of places, a lot of moving around to escape layoffs. And uh, I just I felt like something was just missing from my life. And, and then when I was in my, my mid-30s I, or early mid-30s, I just woke up one day and I said, I don't think I want children, um, but I know I want to live an exciting life. And I just I have to start doing comedy. And my husband was like, oh, my God. Well, you know, it's like a lot to digest. <laughs> that was one, one That's conversation. Cool. He was, yes. And he was like, oh, my God. And he's like, well, when are you going to start? And I was like, right now. And I left the house, and I went to an open mic, and I bombed. And I said, well, this is, this is the journey I'm taking. But it was the right one. It changed my life. 
Yeah, that's terrific. And one of the uh, most recent pieces that you did kind of brings all of this together yes. in that you interviewed a number of comedians about what's it take to get by, basically, yes. right? What's the value of a joke? Yeah, so that was interesting to me. So um, for my podcast episode, the first one, I, I was very lucky. I got the comedian Mark Norman to do my first episode of Spent, and he's great. And we were chatting, and I said, well, what do you think a joke is worth? I, I was just, just thinking of questions, and it ended up sparking an interesting conversation about when does a joke pay off? When uh, does the joke lose its value? And he's not a finance guy. He was just talking. But it kind of gave me an idea about, well, what if I ask a lot of comedians that question? Um, because there's so many, you know, and, and of course there is no answer because a joke can live on for years. You can keep dying out on the same joke for two years, you know. You know, then, but then you can you could tell an amazing roast battle joke, like uh, Mike Lawrence won uh, the Comedy Central roast battle on a joke he could never tell again. So that joke <laughs> was worth a fortune, but it's immediate. But now it's worthless. Like he made a joke about another comic. Worth a fortune, not financially, but worth a fortune in that. Well, he moment. won. I think the, the joke that won him the roast battle oh, got him a ton of attention. So that joke was like was like immediately at that moment. If you were to invest in that joke, you would have like that's like I don't know how much money he won. I don't know if he won money or whatever. But that joke was worth a lot of money, and now it's useless. Which is fascinating. But did it get him to another level? It did. So he, so he's, he has become more valuable, but the joke is now in itself because he can't use it again because it was about another comedian. So it, it started some interesting conversations. Um, so it was just a lot of fun. It was, uh, it was it, so I got to talk to Andy Kindler, who was wonderful, and I talked to George Wallace, who was like one of my hero comics. One of um, the greats. Yeah, and uh, Parnan Nancherla, who you had on your podcast, yeah, yeah. was wonderful. And it was just a lot of fun. Um, and I, I like getting into... You know, it, it's a silly question, but it was a fun question to ask. When you talk to some real joke smiths, yeah, like people who really care about and smart uh, people too. You know, a lot of yeah, comedians sure. are, are smart, and we'll think of some comics are like I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think is the best case scenario in comedy? Corporate gig, getting a deal at Vegas. It all de the... it depends what you want. I mean, my goal in life is to be funny for a living, and I don't care how. And that means uh, being around funny people, creating funny things. I don't have to be on stage. It's a re I'm very blessed. I didn't realize that until I met people who had to be on stage. Um, so to me, the ultimate gig is is a. Uh, being in a, is, is being in a writer's room. That's to me the ultimate gig. Um, but other people, um, I mean, corporate gigs pay a lot. I mean, that's that's sweet. I would love to create opportunities for comics to get paid a little bit of extra money. Uh, it's pretty astonishing to me how some comics do really well, but some are just that they, they if you say like, hey, you want to do like get two hundred fifty dollars for like a corporate gig, they'd be like, oh my god, like yes, you know, and you would think like, oh, I thought you'd be above it. They're like, not at all. Right. Um, and, and I, they'll drive to wherever, anywhere. <laughs> wherever it is. They'll drive anywhere. And, and they're the hardest working, f most fun, dedicated people I know. They are the be they're, they're the best, worst people, I have to say. <laughs> well, here's a, here's a, a two-for question. Uh, uh, who are your comedy models for comedy? And who are your comedy models for earned income? Oh, my goodness. That's a really good question. Um, my comedy models for comedy, um, I'm a very big fan of Maria Bamford. She sure. was a real, she's more of a later in life game changer for me um someone who just just very true to themselves wasn't you know wasn't afraid to, to fail she has she she is you either get her or you don't she's you know she's a niche market she's not changing to 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 suit anybody else and eventually people discovered her and that that must have been very painful to keep on doing what you're doing I'm sure she's received a lot. Her her show, Lady Dynamite, is about a lot of the advice she was given and how yes. a lot of it was terrible advice, um, which is very also comforting to hear that we're all given bad advice and we all try it and fail, which is so embarrassing. Um, but I think being true to yourself and being honest about your struggles in life and uh, finding finding comedy in them instead of you know trying to be edgy for no reason, um, 
just digging down into your personal stores of despair to find comedy is to me the ultimate uh, model for a comedian, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, in terms of money, it's really hard to say. I think uh, you know Amy Schumer um, is killing it financially, but I don't know how. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know how happy she is in a lot of ways. I think she's she she's she's had to eat a lot of. She had to eat it a lot to have make all that. She's earned that money with a lot of hate. You know, people yeah. really dislike her a lot, and she's gotten a lot of pushback and stuff that I don't think is quite fair. Um, and Louis seems to spend it all on whatever the next project. Yeah, is. everything he does is he can he can do no wrong, and you know, some it's just it's just much harder for 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 a woman. I I, I think I, I don't know. I don't want to get into a whole thing about gender, but um, I don't know. I, I think that you have you have to cash in where you can. I think you know Louis. Ideally, you know he he's has the ideal thing where he's been killing it for he's been working really hard for like 30 years 25 years and now he's finally in a situation where he has creative control over a project so that sounds pretty ideal to me um being able to perform when you want to perform sounds pretty ideal yeah um being able to call the shots is is uh, the ultimate dream you know and i think women are just now realizing how awesome it is to call the shots that's my goal is to be like this is what we're doing yeah and if you don't like it get get out that's right yeah <laughs> uh, i love it uh and the the podcast uh, let me say this, though. The podcast is one part of an overall uh, thing that's happening for you where you're bringing all of these great interests and talents together. So even though there may be some feelings of anxiety or, yeah. or sadness around this election, you're finding great strength in these two uh, passions of uh, human decision and behavior around money specifically and wedding that to comedy and then putting it out there in a public forum yes. that is uh, professional and uh, well-received. So good on you, Thank Lindsay. You. Thank I tell you. you, it's a good moment uh, right now. Things and are you're, you're managing to pull all those things yeah, together. something exciting that happened... Um so I went to this very boring, I shouldn't say boring, they were very nice to me. <laughs> I, went to, I went to this, uh, to a, something called FinCon. It's like a, fin a financial convention about where people get together and talk about money. And I met all these brands, you know, and they all said, they saw my car, they're like, oh, you have a podcast, that's nice. Oh, you write, that's nice. And they said, oh, you're a comedian. They're like, if you could make this stuff less dry, that's what everyone was saying to me. And uh, and I don't think a lot of it's dry. I think there's a lot of humanity behind behind money stuff. And um, I shot a web series uh, for Market Watch, a comedy web series. And people are like, for Market Watch, is Market Watch getting into comedy? It's like, no, they're just like desperate to get people to connect. And yeah. you you gotta laugh. Money, it, it, people. I, I don't know. It's like you ha you have to market money in a way that people can relate to, and not in a fake way, but in a way like we're all in hell. <laughs> Like, that's like, <laughs> we all owe money. We all don't know what to do with our money. We're all in fear of our money. You know, like, can't we just all be honest? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, the answer is so much of, I mean, I don't want to get into it, but so much of, of, of money media is about wealth and winning. Yeah. As opposed to, uh, you know, getting by and drinking. <laughs> yes, yes, but I think we can be honest. So yes, I agree I'm on, very big on honesty. On That's that, my thing. On that, and so you always talk about saving up for a trip, but that was just to have a rainy day fund. Well, right now it's still in, it's still in my trip fund. Okay, um, I haven't had to cash it in yet. Where hopefully. are you going to go? Oh gosh, uh, I think uh, my husband and I would like to go to New Mexico. Oh, it's very nice there. Yes, a lot of vibrations you there. Know, very you know, a lot of you crystals. Know, you know. and it uh, smells wonderful. Oh, a, a sage perhaps. Yeah, and uh, some always burning wood. Oh, that sounds delightful. Alder, maybe a scent of that. Yeah. Yeah, go, go. It's it's quite uh, yeah. quite uh, magical there, and um, you're gonna be all right. We're gonna we're gonna be okay. 
you know, I won't put that as a question. I'll put it as a statement. We're going to be okay. I think we're going to be okay. I think we all have to just, just you know, s- s- we have to just, this, this sounds very corny, but I really believe it. We just, you just have to be very kind to people, be kind to your neighbors, you know, and, and you know, if you see something, see cruelty, say something, stand up for people, um, and don't engage with people who, don't engage with people on Twitter that aren't going to, like, if no, you're not, we're not changing hearts and minds. Let's just protect each other. That's right. I, I'll do it. I'll do it too. I'll commit to that. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank this has you. been great. People can find Spent on uh, online, on iTunes, yes. uh, all over the place. Yes, it's on uh, iTunes, on Stitcher. It's on all the podcast doramas. And spentpodcast.com is the Yes, website. you can listen directly on my website at spentpodcast.com. Every week? Every week. God willing. God willing. <laughs> wonderful. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. This is wonderful. Oh, I feel better. I'm doing so many breathing exercises that my plants have turned a vibrant shade of green from all this carbon dioxide I'm putting out. We'll get through this, and maybe we'll make some strong financial decisions along the way. Be sure and check out Spent, and look Lindsay up online for more from her. That will do it for this episode, and though this night may be ending, a bright new day is just ahead. Deep Night is written and performed by James Bewley with production assistance from Harvest Works in New York City. Music throughout each episode is provided by the amazing talents on the artistic roster of Howler Hills Farm in the great state of Ohio. Deep Night theme by Zach Gabbard, season nine podcast icon and logo designed by Samantha Mash. Download episodes directly through daleradio.com or subscribe and review the show on iTunes. Also available on Stitcher Radio, Google Play, and SoundCloud. Follow Dale on Twitter at Dale Radio or Instagram at Dale Seaver for behind-the-scenes peeks into the production of the show and the life of Dale Seaver. Thank you to all the subscribers and supporters of this program, and thanks to you for listening.